Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today Jonathan Larson, former producer of TV from The Daily Show to Countdown to Chris Hayes, and founder of the brand new The Effing News. I like effing with people, people in power. I enjoyed bringing accountability to their doorstep and making them answerable for their choices and their decisions and their policies. I got a kick out of that. Larson is going to tell us how to fix The Effing News. That's right. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. Back when I was in acting school, theater school, I was supposed to be a theater director. I guess I still am in some ways. But back when I was in theater school, they taught us two different approaches to acting. And they were both really Russian. One of them was the Stanislavski school, the method, which most of us know about. And the method is where you take real events from your past and then apply them to the scene that you're in. So if you're supposed to be, you know, crying because someone died in a movie or a scene in a play, you'll remember, oh, you know, that time when this relative died and what did it smell like? What did it look like? What did it feel like on my body? And then by using that what's called sense memory, you then bring, you convey those same feelings again. So you use the reality of your past, the reality of your feelings to then have your body look the way it's supposed to look. And there's this other approach to acting where you make your body 
do the thing first, and then the emotions follow. Right? That came originally from a guy named Michael Chekhov, who was another Russian acting teacher. So if you're supposed to be mad when you come on stage in a scene, you do this particular movement off stage with your body. It doesn't matter what you're thinking or feeling about. You move your body in a certain way, then you come on stage and you'll just look like an angry person or even start to feel like an angry person after that. You just take this kind of this leap of faith into a particular emotional state, and then you're there. You act. You fake it, in a sense, until then you really feel it. It reminds me of this famous story about Laurence Olivier when he was in uh, The Marathon Man with uh, Dustin Hoffman. There's this scene when Laurence Olivier, who plays this ex-Nazi, is drilling uh, Dustin Hoffman's teeth with no Novocaine as an interrogation method. And in order to prepare for that scene, Dustin Hoffman stayed up all night and went to a dentist and had his teeth drilled with no Novocaine and walked around on the streets. And, you know, he lived he lived through this horrible thing. So he arrived at the studio to shoot the thing and he was a mess. You know, he looked awful, half dead. And Laurence Olivier went up to him and said famously, oh, my dear boy, haven't you ever heard of acting? And these two approaches to acting. They remind me really of the two approaches that we're, that we're seeing, these two incompatible understanding of how politics and government work. When I think of the progressives and the Democrats, they seem to be, and even now, you know, many of the, the well-meaning uh, conservatives and Republicans who are, are part of uh, government as normal, the kind of government that we most of us understand, they, they're like those method actors that you use the facts on the ground or the, the numbers or how many people are employed or what's going on in order to figure out how to develop policy moving forward. You use the evidence, the stuff you see, just as NASA puts, NASA puts cameras in the, our satellites in order to see, oh, what's going on with the polar ice cap? It's getting smaller, therefore we have to do something. All this evidence and fact-based work that, that so many of us put our faith in. Well, there's an, another way of looking at it, and that's that no, let's just have the faith first. Let's have the feeling first. Just jump in and then reality will follow. And I'm thinking that's the logic behind Donald Trump's seemingly random and non-fact-based assaults on various companies. I've, I've spoken with investors and investors now are speaking about diversification. That means when you buy lots of different stocks of lots of different things, because they say you can't really trust any company because you don't know when Donald Trump might just tweet something bad about that company and then their stock will crash or go down. As just happened, they, they he just tweeted something about Toyota moving a factory to Mexico. It turns out it's not really true, but he tweeted this thing and their stock went down 3%. That's, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. He tweeted about GM, that they build the Chevy Cruze in Mexico and that he's going to charge 35% tariff on it now because they re-import them back to the U.S., sent their stock crashing. And it's not even true. They don't build the Chevy Cruze in Mexico. They build it certainly for the U.S. They build it in the U.S. It turns out they do build some of the Chevy cruise hatchbacks down in Mexico, and a couple of thousand of those are sent to the U.S. every year. 
but it's not what he said. And GM ends up, they want to fight it how? They want to fight it the same way that Hillary and the Democrats tried to fight against Trump. They want to fight it with the facts. So they start tweeting and publishing, well, it turns out this isn't really true. This aren't the facts. I don't know if that's the way to play it. And I'm using the word play very intentionally here. I think that what Donald Trump is really doing is inviting these corporations to play with him, to get involved in a kind of a fantasy, in a show, in a charade of a certain sort, where, I mean, Carrier did this, Carrier, the air conditioning company. Trump was on the campaign trail saying, if Carrier moves their plant down to Mexico, I'm going to slap a tariff on their stuff, just you watch, just you watch. Then he goes and meets with them, and they decide to stop maybe 700 of several thousand jobs, seven or 800 of those jobs, they're not going to send down to Mexico. And they make this big PR event out of it, and all the television cameras are there, and Trump goes to the factory and shakes hands and hugs the people whose jobs he saved. Of course, seven or 800 jobs is, is less than Obama saved in a typical hour in his administration, with the number of millions of jobs that, that he created or recreated that were lost in the administrations before him. But that's not the point. The point is not that Donald Trump is actually saving some number of jobs. The point is that Donald Trump is turning things around. The point is that Americans get to see the president-elect on the factory floor, saving seven or 800 American jobs. It's the photo op. It's the event itself that matters. It's the opportunity to convey a new spirit, to convey that Donald Trump is turning a corner and that your jobs are now going to be safe. Now, as a member of the fact-based community, I look and I go, well, this is not this is nothing. You're saving less jobs than than we saved before. That's not what matters. What matters to Trump is that millions of American workers will see what just happened and go, my job is safer. My salary is safer. I am safer now. And if they believe that they're safer, what will they do? They believe that they're safer, they're going to spend more money. If they believe that they're safer, they're going to run up their, their MasterCard. If they believe that they're safer, they're going to be more willing to go into, in, into debt. And when they do that, what happens? They spend more money, and the economy grows. They spend more money, and then more people will need jobs. So just the fact that people feel better and feel safer means they will behave differently. And when they behave differently, then the economy will function differently. So what Donald Trump is actually doing by scolding one of these companies, by scolding GM or scolding Toyota, it's an invitation for them to come and not to change anything major, not to say, oh, we're going to stop outsourcing. We're going to bring back 10,000 jobs. No, do something symbolic. What GM should do is say, oh, you're right. You know, we are bad. We just really did the wrong thing here. You know, we're going to reopen one of our Flint, Michigan factories and create 500 jobs for Americans reassembling uh, Chevy Cruze hatchbacks. It's inconsequential to a company the size of GM. It's a trillion dollar company. 
So they spend a couple of million bucks a year, say, on this publicity stunt. They spend more than that on advertising and on, on other sorts of public relations. So here's Trump government-sanctioned PR propaganda. Build a factory, make it look like you're doing more work in the United States. It doesn't matter what's real or not. Even wink, wink to your shareholders to say, look, this isn't really going to cost us anything. This is just a gesture to the government to make everyone feel good. It's okay. Don't worry. Wink, wink. It's fine. Inconsequential. You do this thing, this magnanimous gesture, and you and Trump and America, and we're back, and it's patriotic, and they love your company, and all the Trump supporters love your company, and... Maybe, just maybe, if you want to play this optimistically, that's exactly the kind of faith America needs to do what's actually necessary, which is to do some fiscal policy. We've been trying to fix the economy with our hands tied behind our backs, doing exclusively what's known as monetary policy. Monetary policy is where you, you know, you change the interest rates, make lending easier and all that. That's not even half of what a government should actually be doing to build an economy. The other half is called fiscal policy, Keynesian policy, where the government actually spends money borrows money and spends money in order to rebuild the infrastructure or do all these other things that you need to then give people jobs and hopefully uh, kickstart the economy. And then once the economy is kickstarted, now you've got the infrastructure that you just built that you need to sustain that. Now you've got rails. Now you've got roads for the trucks to go on. Now you've got good airports to do all that commerce that you've just goosed with fiscal spending. The only way to get that spending, though, is if people have faith that it will work, that we're in a good enough position to do that spending and to get people to feel that good, you may have to do this public relations, this faith-based re-engineering of the economy. Do I really believe all that? I don't know. No, not really. But I believe that that's maybe where they're coming from, that it's this leap of faith that they're asking. And if you look at it that way, and if you look at what he's doing that way, then it becomes a lot easier to understand when he's so unhappy, when he he's mad that they're not playing along, that don't you get it? Don't you get it? We are writing the story here, that this is reality TV of a sort. And you've got to play the villain so that you can then come back. Read your Richard III. This is the way it works. You play the part of the villain so then you can be reformed. You know, Donald Trump's biggest job is to get America to take the leap it needs to take to do the fiscal stimulus, to do the government spending that is necessary to rebuild an economy. And he's going to do that the way he, a television pitchman, knows how, by staging a reality show in which America's biggest businesses are the unwilling supporting cast. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens, and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest, the effing news founder, Jonathan Larson. So, Jonathan, a lot of a lot of people are aware of the new kind of indivisible uh, handout that's going around for people to uh, talk back to Congress. 
which is a whole other issue. I mean, I, I talking back to Congress is great, but if I had a handbook, I'd want to do, how do we do mutual aid? How do we do local currencies? How do we set up a, a cooperative in our town? How do we actually do something rather than, I don't care if Congress hears me or not at this point, but that's another story. But, but you created a new guide that seems in part a reaction to um, the indivisible one. Yeah, so it's called Indivertible. Uh, so it's totally <laughs> in reaction to is a kind way of saying a total knockoff of. But I, you know, I communicated with those guys right afterwards, and they they were excited to see it and see what we were doing. And and I guess my reasoning for doing it was because I have for a long time been frustrated with essentially story selection on TV news, and I think that has a lot. I think I think the impact of TV news on our politics is not terribly well understood. And I thought this would be an appropriate time for us to start thinking about how do we get what we want out of our TV news in conjunction with efforts to get what we want out of our politicians. And Indivisible is really about blocking what they see coming, right? That's their take the Tea Party obstructionist agenda and do that to what's coming down the pike. And Indivertible is sort of that a little bit, but you can't just block things on TV. There's a vacuum there. So you want to have some idea of at least conceptually what kind of things you want TV news to be talking about. Indivertible, you can go find it at at theeffingnews.com which is a, a website that you're working on with some, some fellow compatriots yes. um, from, from the, the various uh, mostly cable news television outlets. But the effing news, broader mission is to what? Is to, to d- expose the processes through which news happens? So the effing news is not quite so meta in its execution. It's more meta in the driving conception. And the driving conception behind it was, you know, I spent a brief time at The Daily Show back when Jon Stewart was there. And so people are always asking me about The Daily Show. And it's it sort of dawned on me over the years that I think people's idea of what the Jon Stewart Daily Show was is slightly different from what it actually was. I think people tend to think of it as having been a rundown of the day's stories done in a funny fashion. And it was not that. Um, which is not a knock on it. It's just, that was a misconception. It was obviously great and brilliant at what it did. And by the way, the, the John Stewart always said comedy comes first, right? And you would hear that. You'll hear that at just about any of the, the late night shows, the spawn of John Stewart, all of those, they'll say comedy comes first. And so I was intrigued by the entertainment. This is not entertainment. They're comedy. They will tell you that exactly. And so I was intrigued by the idea of, what if you flipped that? And what if you actually made yourself stick to, no, the news comes first, and then you have to try to make it funny. In other words, humor is a way of trying to make stories that don't appeal to our intuitions intuitively appealing. And so take the most boring-seeming, unintuitive-feeling story, but a, a really vital one, and can I every day use humor to make it accessible and interesting and give it some intuitive appeal? So it started off as sort of a proof of concept exercise, and now I am apparently still doing it. And now the effing news is essentially is a news source. It's an aggregator. It's an aggregator. And we're very, we're very, we try to be very scrupulous about linking to the sources, both within the story and then at the bottom of each one, there's a little tag 
telling people this is where it came from. Right? Well, Matt Matt Drudge is an aggregator. Well, he's a he's a yeah. I suppose he's a pure aggregator in that he has nothing to say except for the headline, and the effing news actually does have a write up with context. And and one of the things that that we want to do with the effing news is show that the news of the day, right? The first draft. We're always told journalism is the first draft of history, but news is often told as if you're limited to what's in the mix now. In other words, you're not allowed to drag in an old data point from 10 years ago, right? And that's there's no actual rule that says that. So I'll aggregate a story about, you know, repatriation of corporate profits from overseas, right? But it turns out there was a tax holiday George Bush tried something similar, and and I think it was Moody's, maybe Goldman Sachs. Someone did a study of what did that money get spent on, right? None of the discussion that you hear today about this proposal folds in what actually happened when we tried it 10 years ago. So I'll aggregate a 10-year-old thing if it's pertinent, if the context adds to our understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of my struggles for the last 10 or 15 years is I'll, in my books, I'll try to expose it oh, you know, this corporatism thing and central currency and the way we do interest and our money supply, these aren't conditions of nature. These were, there's, if you can, if you're allowed to speak about history, you can say, oh, look, it was invented by this guy at this moment in history for this reason. And we don't necessarily, it, it's it's arbitrary. We don't have to accept it now. But they're, they're certainly in the news news on TV. How dare you go into history? That's for a history channel or that's, the boring yawn stuff. Or it implies you have an agenda that you're that you're invested in outcomes. Why else would you be making a point except to make a point? Right. So effing news in some ways almost entertainingly attempts to uh, uh, reintegrate context into the news narrative. Right. Right. And I, I have this discussion a lot, even with even in sort of mainstream news outlets where I've worked, I'll say, look, we're not investigative. We're not we don't have the resources, but you can provide the same sort of powerful epiphany that investigating a new data point A into the world gives you by just connecting two existing data points. Right. The synaptic excitement that people get is exactly the same. So then the the report the indivertible guide yeah the indivertible guide to the news you can download the pdf and look at this thing it's really nice but it it goes against and so it goes against almost everything i'm supposed to be teaching in my propaganda class so i teach propaganda news so i teach noam chomsky and the biases of media i teach brooke gladstone's great graphic novel about the biases of media do you ever see that she wrote a book called the influence machine which is a graphic novel about history of propaganda from brooke gladstone the woman who does on the media on on npr and what what we teach as media studies people is okay so there's a bad news bias on Yes. Television news, because it's sensationalist. There's an access bias so that uh, journalists don't want to lose access to an important politician. So they cover the politician favorably or else or the institutional biases, you know, the various biases of uh, the money bias you know what makes money and what doesn't the ratings bias. And on a certain level, you're saying that that that's almost conspiracy theory. In other words, to think that the, a news media institution is thinking six months or a year ahead 
is out. They're thinking nine minutes ahead, you know? <laughs> yeah, I do. Ha I do have a couple lines in the guide that that touch on that. One is, you know, if you think they're executing the today's item on the Bil Bilderberg agenda, they're just lucky to make air. Right. And the other thing I say is it would be nice in some respects if ratings, a hard, cold metric actually were applied as the the thing that drives stuff. I've been on shows, I've been in situations where the things that got ratings made people internally uncomfortable or got them out of joint. There was one job where I showed up and I made the mistake of sort of overestimating the background of the person in charge. And so I thought they would be not just comfortable with, but overjoyed with me coming in and pitching a story. Like this was an actual story that I broke that would affect the White House. And I said, I've got this great story, let's do it. And they were clearly reluctant to do it. And what I realized later was nothing in their background had prepared them for being the first person to talk about something. I mean, the training that, that most TV journalists get, and certainly not all, and there's a lot of very skilled, very smart, especially investigative folks and specialists, but they're not the ones in charge of shows. The people in charge of shows are very often executives who've never broken a story in their life if it wasn't like we got an interview with someone and they said something newsworthy. So there's a base level of discomfort with enterprising, which, and the negative space of that is that it's very difficult not to go with what's already driving the conversation. Well, they're watching TV and yes. someone on Fox sure. is doing it or CNN's doing it. Right. I mean, and that's why you'll see on these, these, on the news crawl or on the Chiron, they'll say, you know, breaking news. It doesn't mean that they've broken the news. Right. It just means they're reading it's the same happening. news that yeah. you're reading. Yeah. <laughs> and the one thing I would say about what you said earlier in terms of the tendencies towards bad news and conflict and sensationalism, I tend to view those as institutional norms within news because I think they're human norms. I think those are intuitive norms. We, res you know, ask Shakespeare, right? We respond to conflict. Conflict is more interesting than lack of conflict. Right. If there's a diner on the side of the road and a car crash, what are you going to look at? You know, even Depends though how hungry, I am. exactly. But yes, <laughs> the diner's not going to cause a uh, a, a, a right. rubbernecking, rubbernecking. Uh, a traffic jam <laughs> in most cases. That's right. But the the point I make in the guide is that the skills that most TV journalists are taught are not necessarily the ones that I think are relevant in terms of giving us the one, the journalism we need today. And the, those two skills are that are not taught. One is recognize the story that doesn't appeal to those intuitive responses. Recognize why a story that seems boring is really important. And then without the second skill, that's meaningless because the second skill is know how to tell that story in a way that gives it to the viewer or the reader that same kind of intuitive charge that the obvious stories have. On some level, though, when you're talking about a calibration that's, at this point, is minute compared to the difference between news and whatever that stuff is that most people are reading these days on Facebook. You know, just pure, made-up, alien conspiracies. Oh, the so-called fake news yeah, stuff? Yeah, you know, alien babies eat Clinton's feet or whatever. Right. 
Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, you know, the good old pizzeria with the child abusers. Yeah. and No, of course. In fact, I just had uh, a reader of the effing news email me w- and complain about the negativity in there about policies that are coming down the road. And they said something about, I just couldn't vote for the Satanist pedophile. <laughs> and and there's so many different layers of that onion to unpe- to peel. You don't even know how to respond. You know, right, it's hard but, to know how to even have that conversation. I mean, it's not like it's, people are acting like this is new. It happened to Kerry when he was, you know, swift boating was a form of fake news. Oh, sure. I also think it's probably been around forever, right? I mean, you had rumors before there was a printing press. Right. Right? I mean, ask ask the witches about fake news. Right? right. I mean, I guess the difference is, I mean, this is what a lot of my work was, you know, originally about, was that we were we had been living really since broadcast media and probably a little bit before in a much more tightly controlled top-down media space. You know, back in the late Middle Ages, maybe we were in a more mimetic media space with sort of uh, rumors going back and forth between people. You'd go to the the market twice a week and find out who's the priest screwing, who do I want to, <laughs> you know, what what's the mayor doing, uh, who's got the best chicken, and, uh, uh, you know, whatever. And are there witches in, yes. in the next town? Yeah. You know, and that was a mimetic peer-to-peer thing, which got replaced in some ways by a more authoritative, responsible news media. Right. You know, kind of peaking in that Walter Cronkite era when sure. he uh, kind of single-handedly ended the Vietnam War through a miscommunication. But that's a story we don't have to get into. I mean, the, the guy, he's about to be covered by Spielberg as like the greatest American hero of all time. Is Spielberg doing a Cronkite movie? Yeah. Oh. But... Oy, oy, oy. I mean, the reality of what of what Cronkite actually did, uh, you know, the, his the bias that he brought to uh, to evening news and the the impact on the geopolitical situation was was huge. But that then broke down with the emergence of the Internet. And we've gone back into this peer to peer right thing again, right. which is why it feels so out of control. And we've got to kind of get our bearings. Yeah, I think that's roughly true. I do think there's th- that it's sort of obliges us all collectively to engage with epistemology, right? We now have a social obligation to now that now that our gatekeepers are largely gone, we now have a collective social obligation to agree on what it means to responsibly know something to the extent that we it's okay to act on that alleged knowledge. But do people want to know? You know, do people I mean this is really good. I had a I don't know if I should even talk about I guess I can. Uh, I had a lunch with some people who were, uh, they work at um, the Kissinger and Associates, you know, which is the Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State dude. And he's got all these advisors and they, they uh, do consulting for banks and things who want to go and invest in China or whatever. So I had lunch with them. And this was before the Trump thing. This was in the last election or the Gore election. And they said, well, now we know democracy was a failed experiment. And we have to look at, well, what replaces? Because of Bush v. Gore? That's what was driving their because, thinking? Yeah, and because people the, the, people are not voting intelligently. They're not, it's not an informed populace that, whether it's you know, Fox News or other uh, you know, disinformation outlets, it's more the, the, 
uh, Walter Lippmann original. He was the original uh, public relations guy in the early 1900s who helped Woodrow Wilson sell World War One to America after he had run on a peace platform where they said, look, you know, people are just not they're great, but they're really not smart enough. They're not informed enough to make appropriate decisions for themselves. So we'll have a council of experts that'll figure out what's right and politicians will do that, and then they'll communicate to the public through public relations people who will convince the public of what they need. And I think the Kissinger people were saying, you know, maybe we have to go back to that, that this is just out of control. If you're going to have a commercial American Idol style news media, you know, screw it. Just let it go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there's so much in what you just said. I do think that the bar has been raised in terms of how smart the average person needs to be in terms of evaluating the policy choices before them. And I, I was thinking about this actually on the way over here, about how in the 70s, you had a, the, a lot of think tanks formed whose goal, and this is a this is a biased way of putting it, but essentially whose goal was to make to undo some of the norms, right, about how we understood certain things. It used to be understood that, of course, you raise taxes during wartime to pay for it. And, of course, when you're in a recession, the government borrows so that it can stimulate the economy with, with spending, right? These used to fiscal, be... There was a thing called fiscal policy, yeah. which was not other than monetary policy. It was the government would build bridges and stuff to give people jobs. Right, right. And those used to be sort of bipartisan norms. This was not controversial between Republicans and Democrats. And then you had a relatively small cohort of people found think tanks to challenge those norms and essentially do what creationism did, what, which is to, to gin up you know, pseudoscience around some of these things. And to essentially what I'm getting at is they made it more complicated. So now you need to be you need to invest more because you don't get to take that that truth for granted anymore because now the average person has to figure out, oh, stimulus spending, good or bad. How are, how is the average person supposed to do that? So, but you're saying, I mean, but you're saying people are actually less educated rather than more. I mean, in in my own town, when the school budget uh, issue comes up, there are people who say to me. I don't get it. I don't have kids in school. Why should I be paying right. for the school? Right. Well, my only response is to that is, well, I'm not old. Why should I be paying for your Medicare? Sure. You know, which is, so there's not even an understanding of the basic civic social contract. Right. And even, even the contract aside, they're, they've become severed from the benefits, the specific concrete benefits that do accrue to them from having a vibrant family and youth culture in their town, right? Those are those have second and third order benefits to people, right? It's not like it's just it's just a social obligation. It actually benefits you. You know, if your if your town is full of kids who go to terrible schools and no one takes care of them, you might meet one of them in a darkened alley sometime, you know? So well, right. It's the it's the high price of low cost. You know, it's the Walmart effect. So you spend all your money at Walmart because it's cheaper in the short run and you destroy your tax right. base and lead to unemployment and everything else. Right. And meanwhile, your taxes are going to pay for their social safety right. net anyway. Right. So I do think, and that's another thing that I try to do in the effing news a lot and in my own journalism and when I've done mainstream journalism as well is to make those connections 
apparent to make them real. And the way the news does the news generally is they ju- they silo it in terms of what was the policy development today? If we're lucky, we get the policy development. And more likely, what are the political ramifications? We very rarely get the how does that connect to people element of things. I mean, and you still have, uh, obviously, you wouldn't be uh, publishing your site or doing your guide. You still have tremendous hope for democracy. I mean, you don't, you don't think we're all doomed, that this is that we're descending into fascism and you know, 500 years of tyranny. I don't. I don't. I think <laughs> I have this horrible, I had this horrible line, I think the day after Trump was elected, I said something like, you know, I reviewed the various things that happened under the George Bush presidency. And I said, guys, this was, this, this was, that was a cabal that came into office knowing they wanted to go to war. You know, we, we screwed up the Middle East, 4,000 Americans dead, upwards of 100,000 Iraqis dead, crashed the global economy, you know, essentially how much worse could Trump do since he doesn't know how to use government the way Dick Cheney did. And so when I said something like, people, you know, we're going to survive this with the obvious sad exception of those who are literally not going to survive, survive it. Right. So, so then I said, act- but presidents always kill people. That's part of their job, right? Obama had drones. We had, right. we had capital punishment under Obama. Right, I think. Right, he got of, rid of a million, you know, Mexicans or something. All the deportations, sure, that's right. And a lot of how we feel about those things, I think, gets wrapped up in our assumptions and beliefs about the essences of the politicians doing them. And so, I think that's one of the thing I, things I talked about a little bit was if you can divorce your policy reactions from whatever cultural or aesthetic loathing you might have for Donald Trump, some of them might not be terrible. And it would be a shame to let some of them go by the wayside just because of a knee-jerk, you know, antipathy towards him. Right. But you're you're promoting a, a almost, you know, wonkish interest in facts and outcomes and reality and how much lead is in the water and how do we make there be less how much is being spent on schools and can we make that more you know that that kind of i wonder how possible those kinds of conversations are in this you know post-american idol you know reality tv fictional fantasy media space that we're in now. So the one the one outlet I would say that has done that kind of thing, I think relatively successfully, I would say is Fox News. And this is something I talk about in in Divertible, right? You, my I <laughs> I'm not going to say which relative because she might be listening, but I had a long discussion about Benghazi with a, a relative of mine and she was very well informed about specific things that had happened. Four hours went by in the middle of the night. She didn't make a call. I have yeah. no idea even what you're talking about because I yeah. haven't gotten into uh-huh. the weeds. I watch, I watch Fox. There so. you go. Yeah. There you go. So <laughs> you know, I'm guessing better than I do, that they actually will talk about substantive things. I'll cherry pick facts, but yeah, they'll be facts. They'll be facts. I'm not saying I endorse their contextualization right. or any of that, but... To an extent that I think other networks don't and are blind to, I think Fox actually does get into. I mean, you know, the Tea Party stuff came out of policy, ostensible policy concerns that got a lot of airtime on Fox. Not just Fox, obviously. CNBC, 
you know, there was, was in the mix as well, but Fox certainly more than anyone, they were talking about budgets and healthcare policy. You know, the, what was it? The Cornhusker kickback, you know, when, when the right outlets decide that policy matters, all of a sudden, people are fascinated. Right. Well, Fox didn't like Trump for the longest time, though. Right. Because Trump was more from the the crossover of, of fictional reality TV into into news. He was more American Idol than than Fox. Well, I think also his ideological... He was such an ideological grab bag that I'm right. sure there was a big level of discomfort with him. But to your point, I do think it's possible. And I think we see it even in the mainstream ones as well. The O.J. Simpson story... It's going back a ways, but people got into the weeds on forensic evidence and all of this well, stuff. I still look at I I mean, and this I, I was saying that the Trump, uh, you know, the Trump election was sort of like the other shoe of of 9-11 dropping. But then I realized, no, no, the Trump election is the other shoe of the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, the O.J. Simpson trial had all of these white people going, what about the facts? The jury ignored the facts and and people celebrated, black people in L.A. celebrated because it wasn't about the facts at that point. It was about there was a larger context of police brutality and, and railroading of black men into prison. And it was about that. And they were so even if even people who thought O.J. did it were still happy that he would get off. At right. That How point. you defined the problem to. De- Define right. how you felt about the the resolution, and I feel like now there's a, a it's another crowd of people looking at. Wait a minute, there were no facts. This guy said one thing one day, and another thing another day, another thing another day, and now he's president. It's like, wait a minute, what a miscarriage of of you know a miscarriage of justice here. Well, he did, he did lose the popular election, but look, the reality is we've, and I think the left has done this to some extent too has said in various ways that feelings and emotions should be elevated, sometimes even above concerns about factuality. You know, this is, this is, that used to be the conservative knock against the left back in the 60s and 70s, right? Mushy-headed liberals just cared about feelings, you know? And the conservatives saw themselves as the, the aridly intellectual thinkers, you know? And, the left has its anti-vaxxers, it has its truthers, it's got its people who are doing the same thing about Trump. The, the other argument I make about how to think about Trump, and I said this about Bush as well, was the left is very willing, and I think in a, it's to the left's credit, they're very willing to look at a criminal and say, that person's not evil, that person is a product of society. And I think that's a valid approach. So I would say apply the same sort of thinking that you would apply to a criminal to Trump and Bush and any of them and say, no, take them as human beings who are the good guy. They're the hero of their own story. I guarantee you, none of them think they're the bad guy. So if you make it easy for them to think you're the bad guy, then that makes it much easier for them to do what they want. If you want them to... Right. They want Trump certainly wants to be the good guy in his own story. Yeah. I mean, that's why right I after he was elected, I, I the the broadcast I did was was about uh, how everyone should apply for the to be in the administration. He had that website, right. you know, at, at whatever right. it was called. Uh, uh, Greatagain.gov. Yeah. And you could have I applied to be chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, secretary of the Treasury. HUD I did, although what's his name got that. Yes. 
just to see. I mean, but as also as a way, almost as an exercise in, all right, right. Let's take him at his word, right. And 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 also, especially someone like him with his mental problems. If oh, God. well, no, but uh, he is a good. And let's say he's a good guy, but he's got this sort of. Um, he's his good guy. Right? He's he's a good, but yeah. he's got a recency bias. You know where? Sure. So and and I always said the most important position is going to be secretary of last guy to talk to president. Exactly. Trump. Yeah. But the, the more he's trying to please those in the room around him. So be one of those people. Sure. You know, and Absolutely. be that audience. Right. And so yeah, I'll run the economy. I'm right. certainly as qualified to be chairman of the Federal Reserve as he is to be president. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. This. this I, at least I've read these books. I I'd mean, vote for you. Thank you. Yes. You don't vote for that one, but still. <laughs> You know, at, at the same time, and and I don't mean to put you on the spot, person. I know you're you're very busy and all the things you do, but I know probably over the last weeks since the election, uh, I've gotten maybe ten emails from the best people I know in news and journalism, uh, mostly from television news, looking for work. You know, whether it's, you know, Al Jazeera television that got kind of shut down or The Times is letting go more people or uh, shuffling that's going on at MSNBC and CNN. The good, the best of them are out on the street right now. You know, so I guess I, I my double question is what's going on that the best ones are on the street and the worst ones, the kids, are are in there. These interns seem to be running these shows now. And two, what what is your advice for people who are all the young writers and journalists and and want to be net journalists? What what should they be doing now to sort of try to do this professionally rather than just to be a good citizen? Well, I think a lot of it depends on what you want to do and what you want to get out of it. What drives you? Like people would say, why do you, what do you get out of it? This was way back when I was in print. And I would say, I like to, I like effing with people, people in power. I, you know, people who had power, I enjoyed bringing accountability to their doorstep and making them answerable for their choices and their decisions and their policies. I got a kick out of that. And so I think it's sort of important to acknowledge the non-social utility <laughs> motives that you bring to the table. I, but I, that is the social utility of journalism, though, is to is accountability. It's it, the align, state. it aligns with it, but that same instinct could be applied towards someone who's doing a great job right with their policy and i could still want to f with them and maybe end up you know doing Harm. enabling but exactly so i think it depends on why people want to do it most of the people that i talk to if, whether i'm hiring them if i'm hiring people or just getting to know them usually the answers for why they got into tv news are sort of horrifyingly vapid like literally to be on tv is one that i heard quite often and there was no there was no beyond that that was the first order <laughs> goal yeah it's william hurt in broadcast news yeah. he's the guy that and in some cases those are the people that should be on the screen you know if they're just reading if they're not journalists yeah yeah but i mean it's very rare to get um i always say there are two kinds of anchors i like to work with one one is the kind that either because they'll read anything or because they know me and trust me, they'll just read what I say, what I write. Right. 
I, that's fine with me. I'm okay uh-huh. with that for obvious reasons, yeah. right? And then there are ones who are engaged in the process and they say, let's do this. How do we do this? Can we do this? Well, I have a question about this. And that's also great. I want to leave our uh, listeners with some uh, sagely wisdom to depart with. I'm encouraged, I mean, as, as a human and a, a, a team human player, I'm encouraged by, you know, what seems like your your optimism and kind of the moderation of, you know, of panic that's out there. I mean, and partly it's because, you know, you've been in the in the role, the 21st century role of court jester on a certain level, you know, who brings the truth by shrouding it in a gentle, humorous or ironic package. At times, yeah. If you want to if you want to try to end this on a positive note, right? The mechanism, the pathway of getting towards George W. Bush in terms of trying to move him towards a policy outcome that you wanted was impenetrable, right? How are you going to do that? What do you think Dick Cheney was going to give a crap what you thought? We have a president who essentially all you have to do to get your agenda on his radar and get his sympathy is get Wolf Blitzer to talk about it for five minutes and boom, you're in, right? You were talking about how do I get to be the guy in the room where it happens, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And this is a guy who, I don't know if you saw, but a few weeks ago, he said at some meeting, I think it was at the meeting, remember the meeting with all the tech giants? Yeah. He said something there like, you guys all have my number. Don't worry about going through channels, Right. This is not a guy who feels the need to insulate himself with all that stuff. And I think he's very he's very attuned to how people are going to perceive him. That's great. That means we have more power than we did in past administrations, right? So if all we do with that power is suggest you're a bad person, We've, we've basically taken ourselves off the table. If we use it to say we need certain outcomes for these specific reasons, can you help us? We might not feel good about ourselves, but the outcomes are more likely to be better, I think. It, it, sounds, it sounds like I'm being overly whoosh, you know, mushy or, or soft-hearted, but I actually think of it as pretty cold-hearted, right? Do we want things from him or not? Right. And what's the best way to get them? Right. Is, and it, if to, that bro- is it to alienate them immediately yeah. and have them hate you and not listen? Or... Right. The other thing. The other thing. Right. To basically, you know, eat... <laughs> I know. Eat it and I know. suck and up that's... all your moral outrage. And no, you don't get to uh, vent about yeah. it. And I and know. You... I got a lot of angry email when... Because I, I was in New York, you know, after the election, everybody's marching and screaming at his building. And I'm thinking... Is this really going to help? Is this going? I mean, I understand people have ups, they're upset. Right, you right. know, they want to keen by the water. You know, like the the women losing their sailors to the sea. But uh, at a certain point, it's like, is this tactically appropriate? See, I think it absolutely is. If it's about a thing rather right. than a person, if those protests and the ones we're going to have on on. January 20th around inauguration. Yeah. If those are policy pegged, what a difference in the way they're covered. Right. Then people holding up signs saying, you are not my president. Right. Because, sorry, buddy. Yeah. He is your president. Yeah, look it up. (laughs) Look it up. (laughs) You might not like it. 
And but but president isn't isn't an essentialist exercise. Right. You don't get to choose. You know, it's like my kid might yell, you're not my father. Well, sorry. <laughs> sorry. You can't divorce me just yet. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's hard because that means denying the same sort of intuitive impulses, frankly, that shape TV news. If we start denying our impulses and start going with a more rational, thought out, tactical approach, then TV news that speaks to that will start to arise in response to it. And I think we're more likely to get better outcomes from our president. Our president. I'll practice saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jonathan Larson. Thanks for, for being on Team Human. Thank you for the, the effing news and the indivertible. Yes. Indivertible. Indivertible. I kind of like that. Indivertible. The indivertible guy. But you don't need to remember that if you don't. Just go to effingnews.com, uh, the effing news, and you'll, uh, you'll find it there. And it's, a, it's a, also a great resource for, and I'm sure many media studies students are listening to this, it's a great you know, uh, corrective to a lot of the uh, assumptions we've been making about um, just how organized and institutional and thought out the American propaganda landscape has been since the days of Ed Bernays and, and Walter Lippmann and how uh, emotional and random uh, a lot of what happens uh, actually is. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank you for joining Team Human and for contributing to the life of this show, both by listening and offering your support at teamhuman.fm. I want to thank the newest sponsors of this show, Michael Fredrickson, Sean Feeney, and Sarah Wilson for your very generous gifts. We're also being broadcast on a growing network of public and community radio stations. If you've got a favorite, particularly a college station, please let them know about this show and the fact that they can have this fine, non-commercial content absolutely free. Or email us at teamhuman.fm and we'll contact them for you. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests. You can get in touch with us, find out about what people are doing, find resources to get involved, and most of all, find out how to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.